Welcome to Present Value. Hey, Present Value listeners, Jack Moriarty here. I am really excited to share the following episode with Professor Bob Frank, who not only just finished up his final teaching course at Johnson, but was also the very first guest on Present Value. In the interview, we take a deep dive into his newest book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work. This is a book with considerable implications for how we understand human behavior and how we leverage that understanding to inform public policy to tackle some of our most vexing problems, particularly our response to climate change. Professor Frank is a great friend of the show, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Robert H. Frank is the H.J. Lewis Professor of Management and Professor of Economics at Cornell University's Johnson Graduate School of Management. He has been an Economic View columnist for The New York Times for more than a decade. His books include The Winner-Take-All Society, The Economic Naturalist, and Success in Luck. He's just released his latest book, Under the Influence, Putting Peer Pressure to Work, published by Princeton University Press. Professor Frank was also Present Value's inaugural guest in 2017, and we're delighted to have him back on the show to share his latest work. Professor Frank, welcome back to Present Value. Thanks, Jack, and great to have another crack at it. Excellent. Professor, you begin putting peer pressure to work with a brief history of the understanding of social connectedness, including the popular Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game in the 1990s. Can you start by sharing the background that you drew upon in the book? Yeah, I think there's a long history of this speculation that we're way more connected to one another than intuition suggests. I know we all have examples of cases where we know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody else who's connected closely to somebody in Tokyo or in Osaka or Timbuktu. It's quite familiar in the form of examples like that, but I think the claim that's been made is much bolder than that. It's that any two people no matter where they come from, no matter what they do, are linked by a chain, something like A knows B, B knows C, and so on, of only five or six links. So A can be connected to E by a very short chain of acquaintances. And I think, to me, that idea is still fairly astonishing. But I think the broader point that it illustrates is that we're not islands. We're very enmeshed in groups, and we're probably more influenced than we realize by what other people around us do. The notion is that it's a complex and dangerous world out there. We have limited information. So does everybody else on an individual basis have limited information. But when you add everybody up, the herd knows way more than we do. And so it's just natural that we would have developed an inclination to be inclined to take cues by watching what other people do. If you didn't have that inclination, you'd probably be a huge flop in this world. The foundation of the book is the concept of behavioral contagion or the tendency to mimic others' behavior. Can you explain the psychology and the science behind contagion and how it affects the way people make choices? So let's suppose you're a parent, you have a teenage daughter, you want to know, is she likely to become a smoker? The psychologist will tell you, It's the situation, not the person. What they mean by that, in this case, is that the best way to predict whether she will be is not to ask what kind of person she is. You don't want to know whether she's a science fiction buff or a political activist or is sexually active even. None of that will tell you anything predictive about her likelihood of becoming a smoker. What you want to know is the percentage of her friends who are smokers. 
if that percentage would rise, for example, from 20 to 30, she'll become 25% more likely to take up smoking. It's a huge effect. And so the peer environment has always been an important influence on behavior. That's not news. We've known that since centuries ago. What's less widely noted is that the peer environment itself is a consequence in the aggregate of the choices we make. So if you say it's likely that someone will start smoking if most people in the environment are smokers, well, what's the proportion of people in the environment who are smokers? That's in part a function of whether I smoke. So nobody, though, thinks to himself when he's considering whether to become a smoker, nobody thinks, oh, maybe I shouldn't become a smoker because if I do, I'll make other people more likely to smoke. You will, but the effect you'll have is so small that most people would just completely ignore that. It would be better if we didn't ignore it. If we somehow gave that concern weight in our decisions, then that would weigh heavily against becoming a smoker. Nobody wants to cause harm to other people. And it turns out that policymakers, and this is quite astonishing to me, have never really thought seriously about how we might encourage people to act as if they cared that their own behavior would affect the herd and in turn filter back onto us. Why not think about that? Now, in the context of cigarettes, you mentioned how when we've taxed cigarettes in the past, it's been justified on the basis of, number one, secondhand smoke, an externality to others in the environment, and number two, increased health costs that are then socialized. You consider the social contagion effects is actually the most important. Is that right? We're very reluctant to regulate. Why is that? I mean, there's a long history to that. Part of it, I think, is the quite laudable belief that it's not the government's job to tell you what to do about personal decisions like that. It's up to you to decide which of your friends' behaviors are worthy of being imitated and which ones you ought to try to avoid. That's your responsibility. All right, that's fine. But we know that what our friends do will feed back on us, often for ill, and if there were simple steps we could take that would make people behave as if they cared about that, why not take those steps? There are such steps, and I lay out a case in the book for why it makes compellingly good sense to take them. Before we move to some of the policy implications that you bring up, let's take a step back on some of the philosophy behind your arguments. We are a highly individualistic society in the United States, and we value the idea of free will quite highly. The behavioral power of social effects seems to challenge the definition of free will itself. What do you make of that? You know, people do have agency. Even if 99% of my friends smoke, there's no law that says I have to do that too. And so, yes, people have the right to choose, and many people, despite the fact that most of their friends smoke, will choose not to smoke. So it's not to deny free will, but there are people here who I think we should care about, whose interests are affected by decisions like this, who really don't have any agency in the matter. Suppose you're a parent. Knowing what you know now about the consequences of smoking, you would want your kids to grow up to be non-smokers, I assume. I at least have never met a parent who said, I hope my kids grow up to be smokers. That would be a bizarre thing to hear from a parent. Well, you do everything you can. You talk to them about smoking. You don't smoke yourself. You try to choose friends who are non-smokers. But what we know is that if they inhabit an environment in which many people are smokers, 
Some of them will resist the temptation to take up smoking, but many others won't. And we can't really say that the parent who's tried every conceivable step to help raise his kids to be healthy isn't injured by the fact that they then take a step like that. You know, smokers themselves wish they'd never started. 90% of them voice that view. 80% of them try to quit each year. Only 5% of them succeed. So that's not a, a fate you would wish on your kids, but we know many parents are going to be injured if we have an environment that consists of many smokers. So that's the real harm that you do when you become a smoker. Is secondhand smoke harmful? Absolutely. There are documented links between exposure to it and incidents of various illnesses, but those effects, by comparison, are very small relative to being a smoker yourself. And the real harm you do is when you start smoking is to make others more likely to smoke. That's the real harm. Another point that's been offered in defense of smoking regulation is that smokers get sick, and then if they're not insured, the cost of caring for them ultimately falls on the government, and that means on us. And so to protect ourselves against that cost, we need to discourage people from smoking. That's an interesting idea, but it turns out to be wrong. And the reason it's wrong is that smokers, number one, die earlier than non-smokers. They don't collect Social Security benefits for nearly as long. They die of illnesses that kill them swiftly rather than of lingering illnesses, so they don't run up big bills for Medicare. If we wanted to protect the government budget, probably one of the key steps to take would be to encourage more people to smoke. So that's not a reason to regulate smoking. The crux of the book is the implications of behavioral contagion as a means to better inform our collective response to the threats of climate change. While we won't spend too much time today on the science of climate change, we'll instead refer our listeners to a previous episode with Professor Natalie Mahowalt, a lead UN climate scientist. Professor, can you talk about the behaviors that contributed to the climate crisis and how the knowledge of contagion effects can be deployed in our response? Yes, I think let's start, Jack, with the idea the conventional idea, it's one held by economists and climatologists, they view climate change as having originated in a standard environmental externality. So the problem basically is that when firms produce things and we decide which things to use, it's way cheaper to produce the things we want if we don't undertake the expense of filtering the carbon out of the process. And since there's no penalty for just emitting it into the air, that's what we do. And therefore, we emit too much carbon. And as everyone knows by now, that's been the ultimate cause of the, the warming trend. That story is accurate as far as it goes, but it misses something critically important, which is that most of the things we do, most of the energy-intensive activities that we undertake are not things we do because they're priced incorrectly. That matters somewhat, but it's a small part of the picture. Mainly the things we do, whether it's to drive big cars, build big houses, go to destination weddings, we do those things because that's what people like us do. And the upshot of that is that any small change that would push people in one direction or the other produces an ultimate outcome that's many times larger than what we would expect from just the direct effects alone. So think about the decision to drive heavier vehicles, which we really saw happening in earnest in the 1980s. 
Some people started buying SUVs and other big vehicles. The fact that they did that put others at risk of injury and death more than they'd been in the past. So rationally, their best response was to buy heavier vehicles themselves. And when they did that, that caused still others to buy heavy vehicles. And now we've got 7,000-pound vehicles dominating the roadways. And for what? When everybody buys a heavier vehicle, the risk of injury and death goes up, not down. Completely counterproductive. What if we instead taxed vehicles by weight? Just a very simple levy based on the the weight of the vehicle. Some people who didn't need a heavy vehicle would respond by saying, oh, that's made that choice more expensive. I'll go with the cheaper, lighter vehicle. They'd buy a lighter vehicle. That would mean other motorists would be under less pressure to defend themselves against the consequences of a head-on collision with a, a GMC Tahoe, and they'd buy a lighter vehicle, and we would have the whole cycle set in reverse. It's a huge effect we get when we take any small step to change behavior in one direction or the other. And I think that's missing from the conversation. We think only of the direct effects. If I were living on an island and and the price of a good went up, how much less of it would I buy? Yeah, that's important, but that's just the first step. In the context of climate, you reference heavy vehicles as a negative behavioral effect. Related to that is housing as well. Can you explain the housing trend and how we're worse off as a result of larger and larger houses? Yeah, we see contagion play out in the housing market with a huge vengeance. There's been a a dynamic at work since at least the early 70s, maybe even the late 60s. That's when we saw income begin concentrating at the top of the income ladder. Before then, it had been growing at more or less the same rate for people in the top fifth, the middle fifth, and the bottom fifth. It was a little different all up down the income ladder. But starting in the early 70s, we saw most of the growth concentrated at the top of the ladder. What did people do? The people at the top had more money. They did what everybody does who has more money. They built bigger. There was no indication that the people in the middle got angry or jealous. They wanted to see pictures of the mansions. They seemed to to like exposure to what the rich were doing. But then there was a group just below the rich, the near rich. They went, maybe it was now the custom for the rich to hold their daughter's wedding reception in the home, not in a hotel or a country club. Now, the near rich felt they needed a ballroom. They built bigger. And then there's a group just below them. They attended the dinner parties in the homes of the near rich. Now it's the custom to have a dining room that can seat 24, not 18. The near, near rich built bigger, and that cascaded all the way down the income ladder. And so there's no way to explain why people in the middle who have actually lower real hourly wages than they did at the beginning of this period, why are they building houses or buying new houses that are 50% bigger than the ones from the late 1960s and early 1970s? There's no other explanation than that they were influenced to match what others like them were spending. And you could say, well, maybe the best advice to them is just suck it up. You can't afford it. Don't buy it. But then that ignores another crucial element of contagion, which is that everybody has a desire to send his kids to the the best possible schools. Where are those schools? They're in the more expensive neighborhoods. And so if you're a parent and your goal is just to send your kid to a school of average quality, what do you have to do? You've got to buy the median price house for your area. If you don't do that, it's your kids who will go to the schools that have metal detectors out front. And nobody wants that. So we work every margin. We commute longer distances to buy land that's cheaper. We take multiple jobs. We work longer hours, shorter vacations. The middle class is under huge stress, 
precisely because of contagion in the spending stream. We'll get back to some of the policy prescriptions you offer to target this kind of problem. But let's move to an area of optimism, which is solar panels and the positive contagion effects there. Can you explain what you've seen and why we have a reason to be hopeful in that area? Yeah, what we know is that if other people around you are doing it, you probably ought to be doing it too. That's not always true. We can find interesting examples where that would be clearly false, especially if we're free to experiment with people. But if others are doing it, you very well, at the least, should investigate whether you ought to be doing it too. And there's a project Sunroof that's run by Google. What they'll do is if you tell them where you live, they will show you an aerial photograph of your neighborhood. On that aerial image, the houses that have solar panels on the roofs are indicated with red dots. What's really striking about these photos, and I've poured through hundreds of them, is that the houses with red dots are almost always next to or across the street from a house that also has one. Very unusual to see a red dot in isolation, or at least not for long. The houses that don't have red dots, they're in clusters too. They're together with other houses where no one has. And there's almost nothing more contagious than a good idea, something that it actually does pay to do, that you see others doing. Smoking, it doesn't pay you to do that. You see others doing it. Maybe there are social reasons for doing it too, but you kind of know in the back of your mind it's not a good idea, and yet you're still influenced. But if you know in the abstract that the thing you're seeing others do is likely to be a good idea, then seeing others do that thing has an enormous effect on your likelihood of doing it. I met with the CEO of Renovus, our local solar supplier, and he was just a brim with anecdotes of how when this consumer installed panels on her roof, the neighbors up and down the block did so within a matter of weeks. The other decisions matter too. You see your neighbor buying an electric car. Well, maybe I should be thinking about buying an electric car. I hadn't thought about that before, but my neighbor's smart. And the neighbor down the street has one too. I'm seeing more and more of them on the road now. I'm going to investigate. My cousin changed what he eats with an eye toward the effect on the climate. Maybe that's a prime for me to think of reevaluating my own diet. We know that these things are enormously contagious. And this behavioral contagion you identify as a green field for public policy. Can you explain what you mean by that and your motivation for this area of policy research? The term greenfield isn't familiar to too many people. What some investors mean by it is that it's a phenomenon where a whole new set of investment opportunities is suddenly opened up. A nice example is the emergence of the iPhone. There hadn't been smartphones before 2007, then the iPhone was dropped on the marketplace. And all of a sudden, there were scores, maybe hundreds, of new products and services that developers could introduce that wouldn't have been possible before the existence of the iField. It was a veritable greenfield of investment opportunities. And I like the term because I think, by analogy, we can think of the recognition of the importance of behavioral contagion and the possibility of taking simple steps to try to do something about it as a veritable greenfield for policymakers. I'm still unable to give a coherent explanation for why policy analysts haven't thought seriously about this issue in the past. We know what other people do influences us. We know what we do influences other people, and yet we take 
no interest in the question of how we might get people to change their own behavior with an eye towards its effects on the herd. Very interesting question. Why haven't we, we thought about this before? But once you begin thinking about it, you see an enormous inventory of opportunities open up. You point to taxation as the means by which we can incorporate the knowledge of contagion into public policy. What is your thinking on relying on taxation and why taxing different forms of behavior is an optimal approach relative to other forms of regulation? When I talk with people about behavioral contagion, I think one of the first concerns people raise is the specter of an intrusive nanny state that tries to manage everything you do with prescriptive regulations. you got to do this, you can't do that. And nobody, I think, wants to live in a world like that. The whole purpose of thinking about behavioral contagion in this way is I talk about the behaviors that affect the herd that affects us as behavioral externalities, and they're analogous in every important respect to standard environmental externalities like pollution, like noise, like congestion. We've long had broad agreement that the best way to respond to market imperfections like those is to, if it's a negative externality, to charge people for the behavior they engage in, make it a little less attractive to them. If it's a positive externality, to subsidize it or encourage it in some other unintrusive way. And so the point is we don't tell people you can't smoke. We put taxes on smoking. We said you couldn't smoke in these places or that places. But if you want to smoke, you can smoke. All we tried to do was put the price of smoking closer to the true cost of smoking, which includes the effects on other people. And I think because taxes are so essentially freedom-preserving in that way, anybody who cares about individual liberty has to have a, an a priori preference for approaching the problem that way rather than with prescriptive regulation. Maybe prescriptive regulation is the right approach in some circumstances, but there's at least a rebuttable presumption that the most straightforward solution is to make the behavior that causes harm less attractive by taxing it. And there's another feature that commends that approach, which is that the current tax system, unfortunately, raises much of its revenue by taxing useful activities, beneficial activities. So, for example, we all agree it's a good thing if businesses would hire more workers. And yet, what do we do? We tax payrolls, which reduces their incentive to hire more workers. If we taxed harmful activities, $1 more, that would not only reduce the harm we're trying to avoid, it would have the added benefit of letting us reduce taxes on beneficial activities and get a gain from doing that, too. So this is an interesting segue to the idea of conscious consumption. Some climate advocates have been wary of focusing the conversation too heavily on consumption at the potential expense of a debate around more robust systems change. In the book, you're sympathetic to this concern, but justify paying attention to the role of consumption. Can you explain conscious consumption and its importance? I think climatologists who say that changes in individual behavior, not using plastic straws, eating less beef and dairy, turning the thermostat down, those are all good things to do, but by themselves, they hold absolutely no promise of solving the climate problem. The only way we're going to get to a solution of this problem is to have robust changes in public policy. We're going to need massive new levels of investment in green energy. 
We're going to need a stiff carbon tax. We're going to need things that really make people sit up and ask, should I be doing the things I'm doing? If I recycle, if I cut out using straws and nobody else does, nothing will change. If I do and everybody else does, then it wouldn't matter whether I did it or not. It will change anyway. So, yeah, I was very sympathetic to the view that no conscious consumption, that we don't want to focus on that. That's a dead end. We want to focus on public policy. But then the question comes, how do you get public policy? And since I've been studying behavioral contagion, I've had a different way of thinking about the role of conscious consumption. If you change your personal behavior, if you give up meat a few days a week, if you start riding your bike instead of taking your car to work, if you change your behavior by putting solar panels on your rooftop, if you do things like that, yes, it's true, that will affect not just your own energy use, that will not only encourage other people to be more likely to take similar steps, those are small effects. But the main thing that you're doing that kind of change in your personal behavior is to change who you are. Will Durant distilled Aristotle's wisdom about the importance of habit. We are what we repeatedly do, he said. You're not born into this world being a certain way. You become who you are by what you do. And if you engage in conscious consumption, what that does is it reinforces your sense of identity as a climate advocate, somebody who cares about the climate and is willing to make sacrifices on behalf of it. And the real import of that, I believe, is that, yes, we're not going to get a solution to the problem unless we have radical changes in public policy, but we're not going to get radical changes in public policy unless we have a massive social movement that throws the climate denialists out of office. And we're much more likely to get a movement like that if more of us change our behavior in line with our beliefs about the climate. We're much more likely to support candidates who will support the legislation we think is less necessary. We're more likely to write checks to those candidates and go out and knock on doors to help get them elected. And so I think conscious consumption is maybe not the dead end I once thought it was. Let's move to the Green New Deal, which you discuss at length in the book. Many critics of the Green New Deal, even those sympathetic to action on climate, have argued that by combining both climate investments and economic policy into one legislative effort, the approach tries to accomplish too much at once. In the book, you push back on this critique and argue that pursuing both goals simultaneously is in fact deeply synergistic. Can you first remind us about what exactly the Green New Deal intends to accomplish and elaborate on your viewpoint? The Green New Deal wants to tackle inequality and warming at once. And the critics, including many on the left, say, no, you're going to just ensure failure in both domains if you try to pack it all into one big package with a bow wrapped around it. It will be too expensive. We're not going to make any headway. But if you take behavioral contagion seriously and what it says about how you would best attack either one of those problems separately— it turns out that what you would need to do has an enormous amount of overlap across the two domains. And in fact, I think it's fairly easy to show that attacking only one of the problems would make, whichever one, would make success less likely than if you attacked both of them at once. And the main issue has to do with how you pay for it all. The critics of the Green New Deal note correctly that the prosperous voters whose taxes would have to go up enough to pay for the massive investments we need to make in green energy, 
are going to dig in and resist that move. But if you really appreciate how behavioral contagion shapes spending decisions, it's easy to see why any resistance on the part of prosperous voters to that step is rooted in what I'll have to call a simple cognitive error. And the basic idea would be roughly as follows. First note that if we did have a new tax proposal on the table, there'd be absolutely no risk that it would prevent wealthy voters from being able to buy everything a person might reasonably be said to need. Nobody's going to propose a tax that would have that effect. So what's the fear then? They're worried that, well, if I have to pay more in taxes, I'll have less money. I'll be less able to buy the things I want. Life's special extras. Well, think about the nature of special extras. What are they? They are, by their inherent nature, things that are in short supply, things that not everybody can have. How do you get such things? The way you get them in the market system is to outbid other people like you who also want them. And your ability to do that, it turns out, depends only on your relative bidding power. If you and I want the same apartment with sweeping views of the city, who's going to get it if it's only one of us, the one who bids higher? And if I pay more in taxes and you do too, our relative bidding power is completely unaffected by that. The same apartment ends up in the same hands as before. And so the failure to appreciate that that is what the effect of higher taxes would be is such an important cost to society. It's prevented so many things that we need to do from being done that I call that the mother of all cognitive illusions, and I don't think I exaggerate one iota by calling it that. I think the mother of all cognitive illusions is a fairly simple illusion. Yeah, you can explain to your sixth grader why the ability to get what you want depends on relative bidding power. Try it if you have a sixth grader in the house. If we could explain that to people, and who doubts that Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg has the resources to make that point understood by every American in the span of two weeks. It would be very easy to educate people to that basic fact. If people understood that paying more in taxes, if they were wealthy to begin with, wouldn't make it any harder for them to buy the things they want, why would they resist if they knew the investments thus financed would make the planet they live in more likely to survive in livable form? The power of this relative effect, you argue, depends on the nature of the good in question and the existence of positional versus non-positional goods. How do you make that distinction and how do we determine which goods are most effective by more relative considerations? It's a good question. And what we don't want is to have a bureaucratic committee meet and try to decide this good is positional and that one isn't. We know what happens when people argue about what should be taxed and what shouldn't in that way. The proposal is rather more simple. It's just to take the people who have high levels of income and wealth to begin with and take a levy in addition to the levy we currently impose on those people. Are the things, the dollars that they no longer have being spent on necessities? No, they're things that are extras almost by definition, and extras are by their nature positional. So I think if we were taxing a $20,000 a year household, we'd have every reason to worry that that's going to cut into consumption that is non-positional or, or how the thing you buy compares with the thing in the same category that others have matters a lot. 
No, you're going to be cutting out muscle, not fat in that instance. But if you're taking a levy from the very top, those people are going to get the bulk of the benefits from cleaning up the environment and the ability they'll have to continue to bid successfully for the things they want will not be materially affected by that. So it's, in effect, fiscal magic. It's free money. Not bad. It sounds like a snake oil claim, and I can imagine someone hearing it for the first time would say that can't be true, and yet it rests on a very simple premise that no serious behavioral scientist would ever think to question. That premise is once you pass a certain level of relative income and wealth, across-the-board increases in spending on consumption serve mainly to raise the bar that defines what's considered adequate. Whether you think you need a 10,000-square-foot house to be happy or a 15,000-square-foot house to be happy depends entirely on the sizes of the houses that your peers have. If all build houses twice as big, we not only have no reason to think anybody would be any happier, there's good reason to think they'd be less happy than before. In an era where the wealth inequality problem is truly global, how do you respond to, say, the wealthy person that's looking to bid on the penthouse in Manhattan and might be competing with similarly wealthy peers around the world? How does the wealth tax implementation work in that kind of situation? No, it's a great question. And fortunately, there's a fairly simple response. And this is already a problem in cities like New York. There are on the Upper East Side blocks where the apartments in a building, 80% of them will be dark for 50 weeks of the year. They've been bought by wealthy people from other places who hardly ever come around. And so the merchants in the neighborhood suffer a loss of trade. The neighborhood lacks vitality because people aren't there. So there are negative externalities when outsiders come in. And this would be another example of a negative externality. We're trying to pay for green investment with this tax. And now the Outside bidders are making it harder for us to implement it. The solution, quite simply, is to put an additional levy on the purchase price of bids coming from outside the country. If you pay tax in our system, there's no additional levy. If you're coming from outside our system, there is one. You end the book in a refreshing way by spending time discussing how we can best engage others who disagree with us. What are some of the strategies you found most effective, particularly when debating issues that tend to be especially polarizing? Boy, yeah, that's such an important issue. It's very difficult to get somebody who doesn't already agree with you or at least not have an opinion on a subject to even hear what you're trying to say about an issue. And so there is fortunately some research on this. And one of the most important strands within this research is that Allowing people to discover something on their own is vastly more effective than trying to explain it or show it to them. It's a subtle difference. It shows up in classroom teaching. It shows up in debates. It shows up in arguments of, of all sorts. But if you can ask a question that the listener will think about and in the process of responding to it, be led to the insight that will cause him or her to think about the point you want considered, that's so much more effective than trying to explain it. The example that stands out from my own experience was from conversations with opponents of the Affordable Care Act. People commonly would say they liked the requirement that people with pre-existing conditions not have to pay extra for coverage. They 
accepted the idea of subsidies. You can't require people to buy insurance and then if they have no money, put them in jail for not buying it. What they didn't like often was the mandate, the requirement that you buy insurance. You could go through a long explanation of why insurance markets and adverse selection problems made that necessary, but that never seemed to work. Here's the question that I finally started asking that seemed to make a difference. The question is, what do you think would happen to home insurance companies if the government forced them to sell fire insurance to people at affordable prices after their homes had already burned down? People would think about that just briefly before responding, well, nobody would buy insurance until his home had burned down. Why would you waste money on insurance if you could get it only when you, you knew you needed it? And from that insight, it was scarcely a leap, a small hop to the conclusion that, whoa, the patient with diabetes or cancer treatments looming is the patient with pre-existing condition. That's the person whose home is already burned down. If you don't have a pool that gets the rest of the population into it, if you have just those people, you can't sell insurance. And so asking questions. You can't just do that pretending to be interested. If you want to have a conversation, you have to actually care what the respondent says and go where the conversation takes you. But I've found that vastly more effective at engaging people in productive conversation than just trying to explain something to them. You point to California and the experience there in climate policy as an opportunity to be hopeful about our response. What do you see there that gives you that impression? People say we're polarized, that the system is in gridlock, that there's really not any prospect for change. But we can take hope from the fact that there do seem to be examples where fairly radical changes have occurred in short order. I like to think of the California example it wasn't very long ago that the leaders in politics in California were bashing immigrants, that we had Proposition 187 out there to deny benefits to immigrants. They were slashing school budgets. They were cutting expenditures on infrastructure. They're weakening environmental regulations. Eerily, these leaders in California seem to have anticipated many of the positions taken by our national politicians in the year since. But it didn't last forever. The voters in California pushed back. There were robust reform efforts. Once the people who were blocking collective action were voted out of office, we saw a return to the a rebuilding of the University of California system. Environmental regulations were strengthened. The infrastructure investment increased to pay for it all, there were fairly large tax increases on top earners, which, of course, drew the usual predictions that the wealthy would leave the state in droves in response. What we know is that now the state has a very large budget surplus. The wealthiest 1% in California, according to a Stanford study, has left the state at lower rates than any other spot along the income distribution. The Environmental regulations have strengthened. The surplus exists despite the fact that they're spending a fortune fighting climate-induced wildfires. Things got better in California, and I think it's going to take that kind of political upheaval before we'll see progress in the national sphere. But take heart. Political scientists have noted for a long time that what happens in California generally happens elsewhere in the country with a bit of a lag. 
Many who are paying attention to the risks of climate change seem to be rather hopeless and fearful about our ongoing trajectory. You seem to feel otherwise. Yeah, I'm trying to offer a, a less pessimistic way of thinking about all this. Samuel Johnson once said, to do nothing is within the power of all men. We don't have to do anything, and we're creatures of habit. The easiest thing is just to sit there. That's true, but we also have the option to take action. And if you have a choice between inaction and action, why choose despair? Why not choose hope? Why not get involved and become part of something to do something about the problems that we face? Many people have done that, and I think my own study of behavioral contagion's role in all this has persuaded me that their involvement has not been a fool's error. I really like the closing remark of the climate advocate, Catherine Wilkinson, at the end of a TED Talk she gave. She said, it's a magnificent thing to be alive in a moment that matters so much. We're really in a a moment of crisis, and there are things we can do. Why not get involved in that? Professor, you recently completed your final official teaching course at Cornell, which I and several other members of the Present Value team had the privilege to be a part of. I want to first acknowledge and congratulate you on the completion of a decorated Cornell teaching career that has spanned over four decades, a career that, among other things, has undoubtedly spawned your own six degrees of Bob Frank phenomenon. Reflecting back on your many interactions with students and the numerous issues you've written about over the years, what insights might you wish to share with soon-to-be graduates of the Cornell community? The main thing that sticks in my mind is how fortunate I was to have had the experience you summarized there. I I was the seventh person hired by Cornell in the economics department when I came. When I arrived, one of the members of the faculty told me I'd been the last person hired. They had never hired more than three in any year before. I didn't have an offer as good as Cornell. So the likely outcome is that I would not have gotten to come to a university as good as Cornell. The chairman of the department, apparently, when this faculty member seconded the motion that I get the last offer, was so angry that he threw a piece of chalk at the professor. So yeah, I I was lucky to get the offer. I had a string of good luck in getting papers published in a timely way that I've never had or never even heard of anybody else having in the years since that enabled me to keep this job. And then so many good things have happened to me as a result of being in this environment. You know, it was, if nothing else, a great environment to live and raise my kids, but also academically, the opportunities that have come my way, the good students I've gotten to work with, the great colleagues I've interacted with. And it's so easy to be self-consciously grateful for all that because I'm so keenly aware of how easily it could have turned out differently. Professor, thank you for your exceptional contributions to the Cornell community, and thank you for joining us again two years after our very first episode. Thanks so much. Terrific. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team. I'm your host for this episode, Jack Moriarty. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.